Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. If you have picked up a copy of What is History Now, which I edited with Helen Carr, or my book The Voices of Neem, you will know that I passionately believe that we must restore women to history. In the 1970s, women's history began, as it were, telling the stories of high-profile women, the women worthies. And in the 1980s, historians began looking for everyday women. But since history as a discipline relies largely, albeit not exclusively, on documents, historians have faced a seemingly insurmountable challenge in recovering women's lives. Comparatively few documents by women or about women survive. So whilst we might have hoped for a speedy redress of women's absences in history, the process over the last 50 years has faced this great challenge. Nevertheless, today's guest has been a pioneer in restoring women and their words to the record. He is Professor James Daybell, and his first book, Women Letter Writers, is a wonderful example of how to access women's lives painstakingly piecing together an archive of some 3,000 documents which took him from country houses in England to archives in the USA. Professor Daybell has completed one of the most comprehensive studies of women's letters and letter writing during the early modern period so far. Today we will hear what we can learn from these letters about women's education and literacy, about their political aspirations and their sense of self. James Daybell is currently Professor of Early Modern British History at the University of Plymouth and a Fellow of the Royal Historical Society. He is a co-director of the British Academy and Levy Hume-funded project Women's Early Modern Letters Online and co-director of the AHRC-funded network Gender, Politics and Materiality in Early Modern Europe. You might also have heard of James, or heard James, as a co-presenter and writer of the Histories of the Unexpected podcast with Dr. Sam Willis. Professor Daybell, James, for the purposes of this podcast, thank you so much for coming on. I can't wait to talk to you about women writing letters, because I spend quite a lot of my time reading women's letters. And so... There's so much in your work that we've got to talk about. But I wonder, given that you have now done this book was based on 3,000 manuscript letters written by women, I wonder if you remember the first one you ever came across and if it somehow decided you on this scholarly path. Thank you so much for having me on, Susie. It's wonderful to be here. I mean, that's a really, really, really interesting question. The book came out of a PhD. The first letter I discovered was much earlier so it has its roots in, <laughs> you just imagine me as a sort of 30 years ago as an undergraduate on a degree. I was a fresher at Oxford and taking a paper 
in the summer of my first year on the nobility and gentry, which I think is still running 30 years later as a special subject at Oxford. One week we were doing women of the nobility and gentry. This seemed to be before gender was invented. And so I went off to the Bodleian and was reading a brilliant article by Alison Wall on the thin women. And this then led me to a lovely little slim volume, and I have a copy on my shelves in my study, called Two Elizabethan Women. And it was Wiltshire Record Society. And it was the letters of Maria and Joan Thin, a mother and uh, daughter-in-law. And these were the most amazing letters I'd read by women. So much so that the upper reading room in the Bodleian, it's not often that you hear laughter, but I actually laughed because I found the letters so funny, (laughs) so energetic, that this then planted the seeds for what was to be, sort of four or five years later, a PhD project. So I managed to sort of go through the undergraduate career. I then had a sort of hiatus where I left academia, came back and did an MA and discovered the Lyle letters and so discovered Honor Lyle's letters. And I was taught at Reading at the time by two really eminent sort of scholars of early modern women's writing, Diane Perkis and Elizabeth Heal. And they really got me switched on to it. And I worked with the social historian Ralph Holbrook and out of that was born a project on women's letter writing. And the rest is history, as they say. But that's another podcast, isn't it? Yes, we can't possibly mention that here. But what we can mention is that those people you've worked with are amazing scholars in the field. And that makes sense of your trajectory. And it's wonderful that you got excited by those letters, those primary sources. I mean, that's how to spark interest in history. But how did you go about finding the rest of them? The thing about women's letters and you know their lives, so much of it's untraceable. Did you kind of have a hunch about particular locations or was it a sort of needle in a haystack? It was a bit of a needle in the haystack at the time. I'd come across this big cache of letters, as I said, in the Lyle letters. So we're talking 1530s, Calais, wonderful six-volume edition by Muriel St. Clair Byrne, published by Chicago University Press. I'd come across M.A.E. Green or Wood, whichever name you prefer, her Letters of Royal and Illustrious Women. So I knew there were things out there. And this was a Victorian enterprise, this publication of this volume. And there were references to the British Museum, which later became the British Library. And so that was my first port of call. I went to the British Library and started trying to go through their sort of catalogue. And they had this old-fashioned card index. It's now, of course, digitised. But I remember the way in was, I remember sitting in the upper reading room of the Bodleian. Actually, no, it was in Duke Humphrey Library, a really sort of convivial library to be in before it got woodworm. And they had a 10-volume index of manuscripts at the British Library. And what these were, were basically photographs of individual card slips shrunk down so that they'd fit on, say, a full folio page. And each volume was sort of around, I don't know, 800 pages, 10 of them. You just do the math. So so many pages to leap through. And there were probably like 100 entries on each page. And it was literally a matter of going through, taking notes that I would then go to the library and follow up. And I must have spent six months in the library, working through those collections, working through the Lansdowne and those sort of big collections that they've the cotton manuscripts, 
that they've got there. And then, as most sort of good historical endeavours start drinking cocktails, I was in a cocktail party, and I won't mention who it was, but somebody really spurred me on to go and discover these things, because he sort of rather sniffly sort of said, oh, well, that won't take you very long, will it? A thesis on women's letter writing. And I thought, well, do you know what? I'm going to prove you completely wrong. And so, you know, it was a real challenge. And what really sort of impelled me, sort of motivated me to do it was actually that challenge of discovery. And as you said just previously, it is that that really gets you sort of fired up and wanting to go out and work in the archives. And I also think there was a real sort of burning sense that this was something that needed to be done. Not only that there was a gap in the historical field, but also this is probably like early to mid 90s. And, you know, it was before things like the Perdita manuscripts and people knew a lot about early modern women's writing. So there's the Brown Women Writers Project, various other sort of projects. But it was still a point where the field was at the stage where you were in a process of archival discovery. And so I felt very strongly that I was part of that and kind of putting together a corpus of women's letters. So I think that was one of the things that really sort of got me out in the archives digging for gems. And I think that's still true, actually. Certainly letters that are in other languages or have ended up in other archives are still to be discovered or are still to be translated and transcribed and there's still lots of work to do I think but what you've done is given an enormous boost to that field and to making people aware of what's out there when you were studying them you would have gone in I suppose with questions in mind and I'd be interested to know what those were and then also what questions (laughs) you came to as a result of studying them Do you know what? I didn't have too many questions when I was going in. I was sort of diehard empiricist, influenced far too much by Geoffrey Elton. (laughs) It's the sort of thesis-free approach. I just read Laura Gowing's Excellent Domestic Dangers, which is all about women and the courts, sort of using a lot of litigation material, similar to the stuff that you're familiar with in early modern France. And she made the point that she didn't go with any questions. What she wanted to find was, I suppose, women's voices or strong female testimony, you know, given the sort of difficulties of recovering that among the sort of all the sort of legal protocols that surround it. And so I had a sort of similar approach. I basically wanted to recover an archive, first of all. So I wanted to look at women's writings. And I thought one of the best places to do that was to go with the letters. And so I was really driven by that quest of archival discovery that I've described already. And then through a sort of process of osmosis, just reading the material, patterns emerge. And there are certain big themes that went on to structure not only the thesis, but the book, and also lay the groundwork for much of my later work. So there were big questions around education and literacy, big themes around the family, women's social relationships, you know, all the things that they were writing about. And then there was a big body of letters around, I suppose, what you describe as letters of petition. So these are political letters where you can have a look at the kinds of political roles that women had. And so I suppose those are the sort of three big sort of pillars on which the study rested, which had their own particular historiographies, their own particular research questions. And I suppose the bigger question was about what does it tell us about that was new about the role, significance and experience of women in various different ways during the 16th century. 
I suppose the connected to literacy, although there's more to ask about this, is who these people were. You've got 650 individuals represented in your book. And I suppose by definition, they must, or I assume they must have been relatively elite, all of them, because they could write as well as read and had sufficient time in which to do so. Perhaps you can give us an idea of what kinds of people they were. Part of the answer to that question is that it is structured around the kinds of archives in which they survive. So one of the big caches of letters is, of course, the state papers or the Cecil papers or letters of other sort of political figures. And so what you tend to have there is elite women, women of the nobility and gentry writing to these government officials, many of them who they would have known personally or been related to. And so you're looking at the sort of top echelons of society. You've then got a series of letters that survive in family collections. They're largely in landed gentry households. So what you've got is the archive still exists and therefore the papers still exist. And so you're pulling together women of the gentry there. But then there are also mercantile families that you can pull up. And these tend to be in collections that have been pulled out of different legal archives. So, for example, when I think of the letters of the Calais merchants, the Johnsons and Sabine Johnson, her husband, John Johnson, that's a great example of how John Johnson goes bankrupt. His papers are seized. They become part of a court case and subsequent generations of archivists have sort of pulled that out as a particular collection. So I think you can look at the nobility and gentry, you can look at the sort of merchant classes, you can get glimmers of women much lower down the social scale. And some of this you can pick up echoes of it in literature, so Shakespeare plays, that kind of thing. You can have a look at Scrivener's accounts, Scrivener's diaries, and you can see that people were writing for fairly ordinary women. And if you have a look at church courts, letters were often included as exhibits in legal cases, and particularly sort of promissory cases, where you've got women who are trying to prove romantic intentions from men. And so they produce as evidence examples of letters that they've received. So you actually can get quite far down the social scale. This is, of course, for the Tudor period. As soon as you get into the 18th century, letter writing is much more widely spread and you can find women from fairly humble origins where you've actually got their letters that exist. The big sort of question that, or the big argument that I made in the book was that letter-writing skills were much more widely spread than previously had been thought among women. And certainly among the sort of upper echelons of society and mercantile society, women were writing as part of almost, if not a sort of daily routine, certainly it was an expected part of the kind of role that such women would have been expected to play. And that you can also find glimpses of women lower down the social scale as well, although the archival evidence is much, much slighter. It's so interesting for me because in the work that I've done, which is equivalent of church courts in France, and mentioning Laura Gowing, Laura Gowing's work, Bernard Capps, Ludinka Rublax were kind of my touchstones for thinking about how to do it. But that is where we've got information about much further down society, but it kind of peters out as you go up the social scale. So one has to kind of work interlinking these different archival bases in order to get a full picture, I suppose. Much of what we know about early modern women is either about exceptional women 
who are literate or it's about criminals. So you're looking almost at the ends of the spectrum and it's much more difficult to sort of get the ordinary, everyday, humdrum nature of women's experience, I suppose. But maybe that's just me being too pedantic. No, absolutely, especially if they were happy. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Nobody writes about happiness. (laughs) The increasing number of letters that you have, I mean, obviously, we can sort of see a general trend towards increased literacy over the 16th, the 18th centuries. Did you find evidence exactly about women's literacy and education that came through those letters? That's a really interesting question. And it was one of the first things that I noticed. I mean, and there are different ways of looking at it. So the first way is actually to look at the letter as a site of women's literacy ability. You know, and there are various sort of studies. There's a great study by Carolyn Bowden on the sort of literacy elements of women's letters where she looks at spelling and orthography and handwriting and all of that kind of thing and then grades it sort of, you know, one to ten. And that's one sort of particular approach. And I think you can take that sort of qualitative approach to looking at literacy. There's then another way of looking at it, which is actually to look at the content of women's letters and to look at the extent to which women are talking about their learning and their education. And I think there's quite a lot that you can look at there. I wrote a little piece on this in the history of education many, many years ago. And you can look at women talking about the kinds of books they read or poetry or, you know, various things like that. You can also, I suppose, look at the scribal sort of authenticity of letters, by which I mean not just scribal ability, but also scribal activity. So this is not necessarily whether somebody was able to write, it was whether they chose to write. And I think one of the big shifts that you see across the 16th century, certainly if you're starting in 1500 and you're going through letters and papers of Henry VIII and you look at women's hands there, I think you're looking at sort of by the 1530s, increasing numbers of court women able to write themselves and choosing to do so. But I think if you're looking at the 16th century, I think there's still this sort of sense in which for the elite, so for the aristocrats, the sort of the mundanity of writing, which is a pretty messy sort of business, cutting quills, making ink, it isn't necessarily something that's compatible with nobility. And so a lot of people choose to use a secretary instead. Whereas by the end of the 16th century, many more women are choosing to write for themselves for various sort of reasons, various sort of personal reasons. And of course, this is tied up with the whole idea of 16th century authorship, the letter as a sort of multi-agent text, and also with constructions of privacy about the letter. The Tudor letter is very different from the sort of models that we have of letter writing today, which are seen as a sort of two-way exchange, entirely private, reflective of the self in a way that it probably, you know, it's much more problematic of seeing that in the 16th century. Let's think about the structure of a letter, first of all. Were the conventions and formulae and niceties Did they make it difficult for you to get at what you thought the letter was really about, I suppose? And how did you wrestle with that sense of these are not letters that are explicitly necessarily showing the interiority of somebody? What are they showing? And in some cases, do you find conventions highlight a woman's kind of strategies in writing? Or do you have to look for where they move away from those conventions? 
That's a lot of questions rolled into one. <laughs> really complex and fascinating questions that indeed I did wrestle with. Absolutely. Because, you know, when you read Renaissance letters, so many of them are, as you say, you know, incredibly formulaic. So you have these sort of particular conventions that people were employing in their letters. And one of the big questions you start off with is where do women learn their letter writing? So where do they get those models from? Because we've got several sort of competing forms of letter writing. You know, you've got the sort of classical models that we're seeing coming in through humanist writers like Erasmus. You've got the sort of older, very formal medieval Ars Dictaminis that, of course, are really super hierarchical. And then you've got the rise of the sort of familiar letter. And do women read those? Do they copy those formally? And what those models would do is they would lay out, you know, as you say, the sort of the openings and closings and the structures of letters. And so most of the sort of openings and closings that you'd get are pretty formulaic, pretty deferential. They're ones that basically reaffirm social and gender hierarchies. Yeah, and there's a lot of sort of differentiation there. But then I think once you've looked at that, there is the sort of the middle section of it. You know, you can read a lot more into that. They tend to be much freer and less sort of restricted by these sort of controlling formulae. And I also think the other way is thinking about women were using particular voices or what Lynn Magnuson would argue were social scripts. So they actually choose a particular voice to present themselves in a particular way as a plaintive widow or whatever. And so I think there is a sort of reading through that. And then, of course, there's looking not just at style and structure and form, but then also reading the sort of what I would call the materiality of the letter. So looking at things like handwriting and manuscript spacing and where you put your signature on the page, all of which conformed to various sort of hierarchies. And this was a second book called The Material Letter, which is less about women and much more about early modern letter writing in general and really the sort of culture and social practices of early modern letters and letter writing. I think one of the things that I wanted to sort of get across in the first book and the second book is we often think of letters as these sort of very transparent texts and you often see them nicely sort of edited, modernised spelling, uniform punctuation, etc. in modern editions of them. But in actual fact, they are highly complex, mediated texts that are really difficult to unpick and decipher. You know, they are a snapshot in time as well. So what you're getting is a particular sort of view of somebody at a particular point in their life, rather than something that suggests more about their self or their character. Your first point about the structure and the Ars Dictaminus was interesting because I read an article recently by Maria Theresa Michaela Prendergast, who was talking about Catherine of Aragon's letters, or at least some of them. And she says they absolutely ad adopt that kind of Oreo approach, <laughs> Oreo sandwich approach, you know, that they begin and end with extravagant praise for the person to whom the letter's being sent. And they hide these kind of quite punchy remarks in the middle, which she called assertive deference. I spent a few minutes yesterday evening just leafing through Arbella Stewart's letters, edited by Sarah Jane Steen for a, a lovely sort of edition Oxford University Press, I think it was. And Prendergast is quite right. It is a sort of an Oreo, Oreo sandwich. And I think Arbella Stewart is writing these real sort of plaintive letters to James I. So she's under house arrest. And she's really sort of pleading for her freedom, her life. And there are all the sort of polite deferential bits at the start to top and tail the letter. And then these 
deeply personal, almost kind of like over-emotional, almost out-of-control stream of consciousness sort of elements to it that make the most extraordinary readings. I think you'd find lots of evidence to support that argument. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how codebreakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race. I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds, and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest, and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday, and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini, to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds, and the Paranormal, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. I'd love to go back to those technical and physical details around the letters. Tell us something about the placement on the page and what it means or seals or the handwriting they used. Any of these things that are relevant to our understanding that might not come across if we read a transcript of them? Lovely question. This, as I said, was basically the next book, The Material Letter, came out in 2012. And I put a little bit about materiality in the Tudor Women Letter Writers book, but hadn't really sort of unpacked it fully. And I really sort of go to town with it in that later book. What I was interested in is the idea that basically letters do not merely communicate textually. So it's not simply about the content and the form and the style that you talked about, but they communicate through material forms. In other words, different physical elements. So if we break these down, you've got, first of all, the paper itself. And size is important here. The quality of paper is aligned to status. You can almost fingerprint paper. So if you have a look at the quality of paper, the chain lines, the watermarks, you can actually date paper and you can look at where paper was made. You can sometimes trace it to a papermaker. Italian flag paper, for example, is really high-end paper 
that was used for court letters and you often find it's the paper that presentation manuscript poems are submitted on so you give somebody that on really sort of high quality paper so different types of paper tell you an awful lot about the status of a person you've also got things like when people are in sort of you know odd circumstances they write on whatever is to hand there's also a way in which you can look at people who are on the move. Do they take paper with them or do they use stocks of paper that are already there? You can also get pre-produced coloured paper. There's a beautiful letter by Lady Anne Clifford, which I think is from 1598. So she's quite a young girl at the time. And she writes to a really deferential letter I think it's on the eve of her ninth birthday and she writes it to her father what's striking about it is that it's got this beautiful sort of flowery border around it and you could have bought paper like that what's telling about that is looked at it from the perspective of paper and looking at the layout and everything she's using it as handwriting practice to her father and it's inculcating pretty sort of deferential gendered behavioural codes you know inscribed within the letter so that's paper there are then all sorts of interesting things about how paper is folded and whether you use a sort of you know a large piece cut it down which is all about household economy and there's a big shift in paper from folio sized paper and a bifolium so effectively what you have is an a3 sized piece of paper which is folded in half which then forms four writing sides and then you fold it up and seal it rather than using envelopes that use is largely used up until about the i suppose 1620s 1630s and then you have a sort of quarto sort of model which is the kind of letter that dorothy osborne would have used which is basically almost eight writing sides so it's a slightly different sort of function and that is connected to basically putting as much as you can on the paper because you pay for delivery by weight so you're trying to cram everything on your paper. Then if we move on to handwriting, handwriting tells you an awful lot, not just about literacy skills, but also about the kinds of hands that women used. I mean, there's a really interesting project, or there would be an interesting project, looking at the development of women's hands across the early modern period and across Europe. If we think about it in terms of 16th century England, I suppose late 15th century, you've got a sort of later Gothic hand. In the 1530s, you've got the development of early Italic hands that's picked up by some of the classically educated women, you know, women like Margaret Roper, etc., etc., who were picking up those sort of humanist models of handwriting. And women tend to, by the end of the 16th century, tend to write Italic hand. And it's thought because it's easier for women to write. Billingsley, famous sort of pen master, writes famously that women are taught this hand because it is easier for them to write. And so far fewer women write business hands and secretarial hands, although there are examples of female scriveners. And women like Arbella Stewart, who I mentioned, or Elizabeth I, tend to write interchangeable hands. So they have an italic hand for certain things, and then they have a rougher hand or business hand for different kinds of letters. So actually, looking at the hand becomes really important. But also, if we have a look at the mechanics of writing, you often come across letters that are written by secretaries, and you can tell that partly because it's written in a sort of very formal secretarial hand. And then the signatory, the woman whose name the letter is in, signs the letter herself and sometimes puts an autograph postscript. Then you can come on to the layout. 
of the page. And there are various sort of rules from the early 16th century onwards about how letters should be laid out. And very briefly, you would have a sort of an initial opening, and it might be honoured sir. If you were writing to a social superior, you'd then leave a sort of slight gap. Then you'd have the main body of the letter. And then in really sort of deferential letters, you would tuck your signature in the bottom left-hand page, leaving what Jonathan Gibson terms significant manuscript or blank space at the bottom of your letter as a sign of deference. And so one of the interesting things is if we are looking at the dynamics of gender in relationships, you can not only tell something about that in terms of protocols and forms of address, but also it is inscribed often in the very layout of the letter. So that's sort of getting at some of those intricate pieces. Seals are really interesting. Who seals letters allows you to sort of think about access and privacy to the contents of a letter. If it's a secretary sealing it, they've presumably seen the contents. There's some really interesting work on Edmund Spencer by Christopher Berlinson and Andrew Zerker that sort of talk about when he was the poet and secretary to Lord Grey. If you look at the way in which he was involved in the letters of Lord Grey... There are a sort of team of secretaries, each of whom are responsible for different elements, including applying a secret code cipher to it and then applying the seal. So you get this sort of sense of who has access to what kind of information. And you can look at that again with women. But seals are a way of securing a letter, authenticating it. So it's about integrity and status and the security of the unopened letter. So there are all sorts of ways of looking at that. And then also meanings attached to the seal, whether you put floss in it or whether you put a lock of hair. There's one really wonderful letter from Maria Thin, who I mentioned right at the outset. It's a really interesting sort of anecdote because Maria Thin falls out spectacularly with her mother-in-law. She's married Joan Thin's son without her mother-in-law's permission or knowledge. And so she spends the first sort of few years of her marriage basically trying to sort of curry favour with her and writes all these obsequious letters, trying to get back in her good books. And in one of the letters, she impresses a lock of her hair as a, a sort of a token of her respect and love, has it impressed into the wax seal. Pretty unusual. I've not come across anything quite so significant as that. I mean, normally floss or string would have been used to decorate such letters. That's absolutely fascinating. And I just love the image of deference being shown by one signature sort of crouching at the bottom of the page as if you were bending before, bowing before the person to whom you were writing. It's such a physical demonstration of that intended communication. Let's talk a bit about content. You mentioned earlier that many letters are letters of petition. And in your work, you say that a third of all letters are women petitioning for something, either for themselves or someone else. And perhaps we've already touched on with thinking about the deferential structure of the letter, but these letters show particularly good evidence of what you call manipulation and artistry. Can you tell us a bit more about that? As you say, a big cache of the letters are these letters of petition, which are basically effectively requests. So they're asking for particular things. And those kinds of letters follow a particular structure. 
Sometimes they've been written by a secretary who is actually following a particular standard classical layout. And so the argument is put in a particular way. But there are also different strategies, different, say, pleading strategies that women would have used to argue their case. And this is particularly when they're arguing for themselves and they're down on their luck and they're petitioning for either for themselves or they're asking favours for sons or husbands who are out of favour. That's one of the main reasons why women would write. And there, I think what you can see is various sort of gendered strategies So women presenting themselves as abject, impoverished women or as plaintive widows and the idea being that it was incumbent upon the people they were writing to to treat them with leniency and justice. Or in certain examples, they are playing on stereotypes about female fragility and incapacity. So you'll often have women petitioning as humble, feeble women There's a very famous letter from Gertrude Marchioness of Exeter who gets caught up in the Nun of Kent affair in Henry VIII's reign where she writes not only to Henry VIII but also to Cromwell trying to extricate herself from the sort of conspiracy blaming it upon her weakness and feebleness of mind as a woman. There really is a sort of artfulness in that kind of gender manipulation that you see there. But I think the opposite is also true and letters of recommendation by women who are noble women who have patronage in their own right who are political intermediaries there's a real sort of sense of command and respect demanded you know none of this sort of tucking your signature in the bottom right hand corner this is about you are friends you are political equals with people and you are asking for a favor you know for one of your servants clients or whatever And the idea is that that favour, if granted, will then be reciprocated in kind. And so, you know, that's particularly used by court women who had the ear of somebody like Elizabeth I, for example. And a very good example of when a woman is actually asserting herself is in an article that I read of yours a few years back about Bess of Hardwick. And you were looking at Bess of Hardwick's first surviving letter, which I think is 1552, and thinking about her character. And I found it really interesting because people had always read this letter, and which is to one of her stewards, and used it as evidence of her being a termagant, is the word that's often used about her, this lovely gendered word that means <laughs> scold, and, and sort of really criticising her character. And you said, no, actually, we can read it in a different way way. Do you remember that letter? I do remember it. It was published in something called Reading Early Modern Women, which is an anthology of texts edited by Elizabeth Sauer and Helen Ostovich. This was something I discovered in, spent a year and a half at the Folger Shakespeare Library and so got to grips with many of Bess's letters there. I mean, this is really interesting because it's just after they've bought Chatsworth, her estate steward, and she's writing to him basically ordering him to do certain things on the backside of it there is a sort of a list of tasks that he needs to do her sister jane is basically looking after the house and there seems to be some sort of well what i interpreted as a disagreement between the two of them about who precisely had authority and was going to be in control and she writes with quite you know some sort of severity putting him in his place i think with bess though i wrote another piece on her news networks which is much bigger sort of more expansive piece, which I think really did try and repackage her. 
And I think if you look at the letters across her lifetime, what's really noticeable is that when she and her husband become Keeper of Mary, Queen of Scots, she has a really dense network of news correspondents. So they're sending her news from the continent. So this is not coming to her husband, Shrewsbury. This is coming directly to her. So she's getting this sort of digest of news that's keeping her up to date of what's happening in Europe. So she's au fait with the sort of diplomatic scene there, because of course she's got Mary, Queen of Scots with her. She's also receiving letters from what's going on in court. So she's kept abreast of that. Family are trying to sort of keep curry favour with her by sending her snippets of news. She's got this sort of group of women in the Queen's privy chamber who are sending her, you know, sort of snippets really from the sort of centre of court as well. I think this sort of repackages her as a sort of really interesting political operator. She's somebody I've been fascinated by for years. In fact, the book starts, the first six pages, is all about Bess of Hardwick. Because letters survive more or less across her lifetime into widowhood and through successive marriages. We don't have letters from her sort of childhood, but you can reconstruct that. It was a really good way, I thought, at least, of giving a sort of opening hook for the book that then opened up all these different themes and actually a methodology for how do you read a woman's letter. And it led to Alison Wiggins reading the first six pages of the book, applying to the AHRC for a brilliant project to edit these letters. So if you're interested in Bess, you can go to the University of Glasgow website and see the terrific edited correspondence that Alison and her team put together. Yes, and it's amazing to have such a resource online. And it goes to show how important it is to study these and to reassess them. When we were doing an exhibition on Bess a few years back at Hardwick Hall, all of this work by you and by Alison Wiggins was so crucial to helping us think about the character of Bess. In terms of content, I noticed with my women, inverted commas, in France in the late 16th century, that one of the things they don't mention, this is in court or before the consistory rather than in letters, but one of the things they don't mention that I want them to talk about is the war. This is the French wars of religion. They've got people, often they're being literally attacked by Catholics. This is a Protestant city outside the walls. And yet they don't mention the war in a very kind of John Cleese kind of way. What do women mention in letters that you wish they would? What kind of gaps have you observed? War is probably one of them. Letters are created by circumstances of war. In other words, you often have husbands away fighting and writing home to wives who are controlling the household. What you don't get is a sort of digest of, you know, this is what's been happening on the front. You get a sort of discussion between the two of them about how to handle business when they're gone. Religion is often not in Tudor women's letters. You know, there are ways in which you can get at that. But often, you know, this is the Reformation that we're going through and religion is actually a pretty difficult thing to talk about. And letters are seized and aren't secure they're not safe. So people tend not to put that down. Although you do find discussions of religion in letters to confessors. And there's a whole sort of series of letters to John Knox by various sort of women that have actually been collected and printed as Knox's comfortable letters, which are these sort of letters of guidance and advice. But that's missing. I think emotions are really difficult to uncover. You have to tease them out rather than them being, you know, super expressive. 
One of the things is that in the Tudor period, letter writing is a really practical form. It's not a space for emoting. It's not a space for sort of self-discovery in the way that it develops later on or that the spiritual journal sort of develops into. It's really quite practical. So it's either about the kind of letter of petition that is asking for a request or it's a householdy type letter that is looking at getting business done or it is keeping in touch with family with a sort of digest of news or shopping lists or, or whatever. And it's not that kind of like intimate personal space all the time. There are elements of that, but they're really fleeting and you've got to sort of tease them out from all the other sort of stuff. It's not the sort of, you know, soul laid bare on the page that you might get in sort of 18th century, 19th century, 20th century letters. Yes, and what's interesting is, that, of course, we want it to be that. So sometimes these things are read as that and the absence of a particular emotion or expression is used as evidence in itself as well. Whereas actually, if that's not what the letter writers set out to do, then to read a person's character into something that's missing, for example, is obviously going to lead you down the wrong path. My take on the absence of the war was that it was just everywhere. And I wonder if that might be the case for religion as well, that it's ubiquity means that you don't mention it. That's probably quite right. I also think the censorship part is true as well. And there's some interesting work done around the use of sort of secret codes and ciphers in women's letters to communicate, you know, things that you want to really be kept secret. I'm not just thinking sort of Mary Queen of Scots, casket letters, ciphers, but I'm thinking about the sort of more routine use of those in letters. Yes, Nadine Ackerman, of course, have done such amazing work on that. I have to say to you that at this moment in time, I am trying to decipher a letter from the very early 16th century that one of the editors of the calendar couldn't decipher, which is quite fun. Might turn out to say nothing useful to me at all. But anyway, I'm reading a letter in cipher in Spanish at the moment. Oh, my God. I know, I know. A crazy thing to do. It's like doing a crossword. <laughs> it's just like doing a crossword. It'll turn you mad. Like Thomas Phillips, the great sort of Elizabethan cryptographer who sort of just drove himself insane, I think, by trying to crack various ciphers over the years. I'm doing it for a little bit of time each evening and that's all. <laughs> now, in terms of your work, as you said, you published Women Letter Writers in 2006 and you've written the material letters since. Where else has the study of women's letters taken you in the intervening years and where would you like it to take you? What questions remain to be answered? Yeah, it's interesting. It's so difficult to sort of leave it because you get invitations to come back and talk about it or write things about it. And it was work that I began 25 years ago. One of the reasons that I've continued the sort of interest in it, one of the reasons I started in the first place was that I wanted this huge archive, this huge corpus to be immersed in this massive collection of women's writings. And that really did set the trajectory for the rest of my career. And it started off, sent me down the road of, you know, several books on letter writing and women's letters. And I've edited quite a lot of those, but also around gender and politics and power. It led me into looking at materiality. So the material letter, which then led to thinking about gender, power and materiality across early modern Europe and working with a network of academics in Sweden, in the Netherlands, including Nadine, including Svante Norheim at, at Lund and Sue Broomhall in Australia, and thinking about questions of not text, but actually how we look at 
gender and power through material objects. And this led me to a book on that Sue and I are finishing off at the moment on gloves. But I suppose also it's one of the things I'm interested in is how the field sort of shifted since 2006. And the book was published again in paperback in 2018. And it was a sort of an occasion to reflect on what had happened in the intervening 12 years. What I saw was the sort of emergence of a really innovative interdisciplinary field, which encompasses sociolinguistics, rhetorical and material analysis, as well as sort of lit crit stuff and historical stuff. Lots of important new books were published by all sorts of people. I think the big sort of directions were around attention to materiality. My work went in that direction, looking at scribal publication of letters that I hadn't really sort of looked at before. Work on Penelope Rich's letter to Queen Elizabeth that survives in over 30 different manuscript separates is published in print as well and has a really interesting history. I've actually just finished something which looks at letters as technologies of separation. And what I was really interested in doing here was something altogether more theoretical. And I think what I was trying to do is, if you think about how literary studies works, their approach to material texts tends to be informed by critical bibliography rather than the kind of work that archaeologists or anthropologists do with objects. And so having worked for six years on gloves and come up with a sort of methodology about how we look at gloves through a gendered lens, what I wanted to do was apply that object methodology to looking at letters as objects and real objects rather than material texts. And so I wrote a thing I'm really quite interested in doing that looks at letters as emotional objects in the sense of emotional capital invested in correspondence at the time taken to write and also the act of receiving a letter as a sort of an emotional experience or the act of archiving as emotion so in a sense what I wasn't interested in was anything textual or anything sort of material texty I was interested in it simply as an object in receiving it I don't know whether I did it justice but certainly it was a sort of clever exercise. Then the next big thing that I'm interested in is working with objects and got me to working with museums and archives and developing ways in which you can gender museums, so gendered interpretations of museums. And this is a big project that's underway at the moment, was funded by the AHRC, and is actually thinking about an entirely new methodology for how you unpack objects within museums in a gendered way, pulling out those gendered narratives that then allow not just curators, but the whole sort of museological team to employ gendered interpretations that suddenly open up museums and heritage sites as safe spaces for sort of discussions about the importance of gender and sexuality in our society today. So that's the sort of big picture. All of that from laughing at a rather sort of racy letter in the upper reading room of the Bodleian in the sort of very early 1990s. Yes, you better be careful, folks. You never know where the study of one letter may take you. <laughs> Professor Daybell, James, thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating to talk about all this with you. And I hope we could persuade you back in to talk about museums or to talk about gloves with Susan Broomhold. That would be wonderful. But for now, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Susie.
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.